On April 16th, which is the day when they had the Boston Marathon, Desiree Linden became the first American woman to win the Boston Marathon since 1985. The long drought there of women, American women not winning the marathon. The day was unusually wet. It was cold and windy. The gusts were 30 miles an hour, which sounds really horrible. The wind chill of 29 further convinced me not to do a marathon. I don't think that the problem's here, though. But what particularly captured America's attention, and at least in any news story I read or, or found out of, uh, or read about it, it was the sportsmanship uh, that Lyndon showed in the beginning of the race. Yes, everyone was thrilled to have America win it for the first time in 30-some years. But early in the race, Lyndon had waited while a fellow American athlete had to make an unexpected restroom stop. So instead of just kind of taking the opportunity and going ahead, she chose to stay behind and offered, since, since this other athlete, Flanagan, had lost time running to run alongside her and block some of the gusts of wind. See, Desiree Linden didn't only care about running the race. She also cared about those that she ran alongside with. In Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, and I'll read them again here in just a minute, the the Apostle Paul described his pursuit of Christ-likeness, of God-pleasing perfection. Now, again, we've talked about this. It wasn't to make himself right with God, but because God had made him right with himself. He wanted to become as much like Christ as possible. And Paul used the imagery of a runner. He describes himself as forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. But while Paul forgot what was behind, he didn't forget those he ran alongside. Listen to how affectionately he speaks of them in Philippians 4.1. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You just see all that affection there. He didn't forget those he was running alongside. Philippians 3, 17, verses uh, 2 to 4, 1, which we're going to focus on this morning. Paul writes to the Philippians to ensure that they persevere while they also run toward the likeness of Christ. He wanted them to make sure that they finished the race. So please open your Bibles to Philippians 3. And I'm going to read to us from uh, 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul describes his own race. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Don't go backwards. Picks up in verse 17, where we looked at last week, 17 to 19. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. 
for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word this morning. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you have uh, just given us so much freedom that we can uh, go and, and buy Bibles, Lord. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. We have it in the English language here this morning, and that is all a work of your grace. We are thankful for it, Lord, and we want to be faithful with it. Father, we don't want to be hearers of your word and not doers. We want to respond appropriately. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that is preserved here in your word as highlighted uh, most clearly in the gospel that we can be transformed, that we can be changed, that we can be people who are pleasing unto you, that we can be made right with you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the promise that we have in your word that he is returning, that he is going to bring to completion what he began in us. So help us, Father, to stand fast and to run the race. In Jesus' name, amen. In a Philippians 3:17 to 4:1. In this whole section, I think a good way to, to, to summarize it, and that's what I've titled these, these two messages. It's about spiritual safety and stability. Paul wrote to ensure the spiritual safety and stability of the saints until Christ the Savior brings to completion what he began in them. He wanted them to continue on healthy, safe, stable. The healthy church in Philippi, in the east coast of Greece that he was writing to, it was facing hard times. But it, it was a uh, healthy church. They were concerned about Paul's fate as he was in prison, waiting to find out what was going to happen while, while, while he was on trial for proclaiming Christ. They were facing persecution. There was also the influence of false teaching that they had to withstand. And there was, dis, there was disunity going on within their church. But for the most part, it was a very healthy church. And the letter is full of joy. It's full of Paul's affection for them. We saw last week, and I put it in your, 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 your notes there so that you could see. We saw that Paul gave them a command to imitate in chapter 3, verse 17, to follow his own example. And the example of those like Paul and Timothy and, and those who followed his example. Those who lose all to gain Christ and those who know the power of Christ's resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, who are being conformed to his death. Those who are dissatisfied with the sanctification that they currently have and pursue perfection in this life, not to make themselves right with God, but because of what God has already done for them in proclaiming them righteous. Those who strive to exercise Christ's resurrection power in their lives. And that's where we looked last week, is that Paul gave them this command to follow his example. We also saw that Paul gave him a reason why. And it wasn't so much a, 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 a clear because, but more, there's a danger. There's a need. And we looked at what need there was to imitate Paul. We saw that in verses 17 and um, in verse 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul was warning them against the, the influence of these enemies of the cross of Christ. They were those who offered really a different way of being a Christian than Paul's example. 
Paul's had a lot of striving towards the goal, uh, uh, laying hold of that for which Christ had laid hold of them. A, a, lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of effort, and they presented a different way of being a Christian. For some, it was building upon the justification they had with Christ through man-made means, by adding on rules to kind of improve their position with Christ. But, but for others, it was something completely different. It was, it was abandoning themselves to the pursuit of pleasure. For some, it was legalism. For some, it was antinomialism. It was, it was just doing whatever felt good. But both were enemies of the cross of Christ. Both were unified in their earthly thinking. Both were, were proud of what they should be ashamed of. Both of them were focusing on their appetites. The believers could guard against the influence of these enemies of the cross of Christ by imitating the apostolic pursuit of God-pleasing perfection. Really, Paul is saying to them, there's no safety without running. There's no safety without running. If you want to be safe as a Christian, run after Christ. If you want to be safe as a Christian, pursue obedience. Pursue Christ-likeness. Don't coast many of us could affirm that in our own examples, coasting leads to sin. Many of us could also affirm that lots of rules doesn't sanctify us either. We need to wholeheartedly, dependently, out of God's grace, pursue after Christ-likeness. Now this brings us to the transition here to Philippians 3.20. And just as we saw in Philippians 3.18, it began with a four. There's kind of a, a, a reason why this command was necessary. In the beginning of verse 20, there is a for as well. Now, some of your Bibles don't have that, that word for there. It's the Greek conjunction gar. It's most often translated for. It shows a reason why. Some of, some of your Bibles have a but there in the beginning of 20. And, 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 and you can see why. Because Paul is cultivating a contrast here. He's contrasting those who have their minds set on earthly things with those whose citizenship is in heaven who are waiting for Jesus Christ. But really, I think that that four is helpful here in the beginning of verse 20 because it shows us that, that, that Paul's kind of building upon his reason to imitate his example of which he had said in verse 17. We saw that that first reason in verses 18 and 19 was the subversive influence of the enemies of the cross of Christ. But the second reason that Paul gives for imitating his examples in verses 20 to 21, and he motivates them with the future reality of Christ's return. So what we're going to see this morning we're going to see four motivations so that we'll imitate the apostolic examples, imitate Paul's example, and those who were like Paul, really all the apostles, and stand fast until a Savior finishes in us what he began. So we're going to see four motivations so that we'll imitate the apostolic example and stand fast until our Savior finishes in us what he began. Now, you'll see if you have your notes there that, that, that this section is a little different than some. It begins with a with a command. He starts with a command to imitate, and then he ends with a command to stand. And really, it's kind of, uh, the, uh, it's a sandwich. And the sandwich, the bread is the commands, and inside is all this good logic. It's all the good reasons there. And so we're going to see that when Paul talks about standing, it's, 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 it's really how he imitates. When he's talking about imitating, he's really talking about standing. And that those are, 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 are parallel our parallel commands there. So we're going to end this morning looking at that command to stand. But let's look at our first motivation 
to imitate. And these motivations are not like, and, and, and I've got them in your outline as four different ones, but really they kind of cascade upon one another as Paul builds up his reasoning. But I think that they work okay by, by themselves for the sake of clarity. So the first motivation here is the reality of our citizenship. The first mo- motivation to imitate Paul's example is the reality of our citizenship. Paul says in the beginning of verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven. In the Greek, the word our comes first. And I know that that doesn't work well in English. Our for, because that's not how English works. But it is important for you to know that, because he wants to make that that contrast. We've been talking about the enemies of the cross of Christ. But for us, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not like the enemies of the cross of Christ. We are not like those who are earthly-minded. We are not of this world. We are citizens of heaven. Now, citizenship was a well-understood concept for the Philippians. Philippi was a city along the, and it wasn't quite on the coast, but near the ancient, uh, the, the, the eastern coast of ancient Greece. But they understood citizenship well. See, the Battle of Philippi took place there in 44 B.C., And really, that battle marked the beginning of the Roman Empire. At that point, the city of Philippi became a colony of Rome. So kind of, it was taken out of its greasiness. Greasiness? I don't know about that. Greekness, there you go. And made Roman, in a sense. For a hundred years, the Grecian city of Philippi had functioned as an extension of Rome. It had the rights of an Italian city. That means its residents were citizens of Rome. It was exempt from some taxes like Roman citizens were. It was governed as if it were on on Italian soil. For the Philippians, being Roman was a source of pride. They used Latin as their official language and they adopted Roman customs. They embraced the, the fact that they were, for all intents and purposes, a Roman city on the east coast of Greece. So when Paul talks to them and says, your citizenship is in heaven, they would get this idea. The Philippians knew what it was like to be a citizen of somewhere else. As Christians, the reality is that we are governed as if on heaven's soil. Our government, our state, our commonwealth is heaven. It emphasizes that we are under Christ's rule now. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not under California law or United States of America law. But we are under Christ's law. Under his rule. Not only in the future, but right now. And Paul uses a special verb here, huparko, to show existence. He could just use the normal verb for is, but he wants to emphasize it. Our citizenship exists. It really is in heaven, even though you can't see it. We really are citizens of heaven, and that is true of you this morning. If you are in Christ, heaven is your home, and you are its citizens. As residents of heaven, we have responsibilities. We have privileges that are appropriate to being heavenly citizens. We've adopted the mindset of heaven, the way of thinking of heaven. Our model for living is not our California neighbors. It's not our U.S. neighbors. It's not our world neighbors. 
Our ideas about loving our neighbors, our, our thinking about spending money, about raising children, about eating and drinking, about gender, are heaven's own ideas as revealed in God's words. That is where we get how we think from. We want to know, how does God in heaven think? And we want to take what he thinks, and that is what we need to live by. Because we are citizens of heaven. 1 Peter 2, 11, Peter talks to those he's writing as, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. And there's that same idea of being out of place as aliens and strangers. As citizens of heaven, we have responsibilities, but we also have privileges of heaven too. Our sovereign is supreme. Our salvation is secure. Our eternity is certain. See, this is why it's a motive to imitate Paul. When we imitate Paul, we are living like citizens of heaven. Now, he was not a perfect citizen of heaven. He was longing for his body too. But he sets the model for us, not just as men or as pastors or as elders or as missionaries or church planners, but for all of us, regardless of gender, regardless of age, him and those who walk like him and those among us who walk like him are setting the example of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. When we rejoice in the proclamation of Christ, we adopt the thinking of our homeland. When we are poured out as a sacrifice, poured out on the offering, the sacrifice of the saints, we adopt the thinking of our homeland. We live as a citizen of heaven when we pursue God-pleasing perfection, when we are dissatisfied with our current state of obedience, but long for more. That is how citizens of heaven think. From Paul and those other authors and examples of the New Testament, we, lit, we learn to live as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of this world. So Paul motivates us with the location of our citizenship. He also motivates us with the arrival of our Savior. It's talking about not Jesus coming in the past tense, but Jesus coming in the future. It says, from which also, in verse 20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a different kind of waiting we have when we know something is going to happen than when we hope it will happen. A child eagerly waits their birthday. Margot just had her eighth birthday. She knew it was coming. It was on the calendar. She eagerly waited for it. New parents wait the arrival of their baby. They know that baby has to come out at some time, even if they get nervous how long it's taking. Taxpayers wait the arrival of their tax return. Now, that may not be quite as certain. Hopefully, it is for you. But you wait what you know is coming. Believers have always waited eagerly for Jesus Christ's return. Angels, after Jesus went up into heaven, said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He is coming back. And that has been our hope for nearly 2,000 years now. Jesus is coming back in the clouds. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce them, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. We say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We cannot wait for the return of Christ, and yet we eagerly wait for it. We know he's coming. He is the Savior of all who believe. 
There's some sweet verses about Jesus being the Savior. Titus 2, verses 13 to 14, describes this blessed hope of Christ's return as well. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We are eagerly waiting for our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has already redeemed us from lawless needs and purified for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The Lord Jesus Christ has already saved us from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Are you eagerly waiting your Savior's arrival from heaven? Are you eagerly waiting your Savior's arrival from heaven? And, and, and it's really sweet here as Paul writes this. He doesn't challenge them. And I don't think it's a bad question to ask. He just assumes it. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be challenged by it. It doesn't mean it's not a good question to ask. But it is what a Christian is. A Christian is those who are dissatisfied with this world. Those who long for God's justice. Those who long for the transformation that Christ is going to bring. That is what a Christian is. We are those who eagerly wait a Savior. This world will never be enough for God's people. Our calendar has many events on them. From the insignificant to the life-changing. We can't put the arrival of God's Son on our calendar, but it can be on our hearts. It has to be on our hearts. We are those who are eagerly waiting the arrival of God's Son. And that is motive to follow Paul's example. That is motive to pursue after perfection in this life, to pursue after Christ's likeness, after God-pleasing obedience. We don't say, you know, he's going to come back and fix me, so I'm just going to coast. I hope if those words ever came out of your mouth, you would you'd feel disturbed by them. Right? We know we want to be pleasing to him when he returns. So we're motivated by the location of our citizenship. We're motivated by the arrival of our Savior. And here, we're motivated by why we're eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. And Paul gets more, more specific for us. Our third motive is the transformation of our bodies. The transformation of our bodies. It says, who will, in verse 21 in the beginning, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This is why, why in this verse, there's lots of reasons we could have, why we can't wait for Jesus. Because of the transforming work that he is going to do. Paul motivates the Philippians to follow his example with the Savior's future work. Christ will transform the body of our humble state. Our bodies are, are lowly. They're humbled. They're plagued by weaknesses, whether spiritual or physical. Now, Paul's not talking about the lowliness of being a finite creature. We're never going to escape the lowliness of being finite. We will always have a humility built into being a creature, and that's not to be escaped of. That, that, that's wonderful that we are creatures. We're not going to become supermen when Christ comes back. We're still going to be humans. We're going to have physical bodies. We will forever be creatures. But instead, 
He's talking about how our bodies have been brought low by Adam's sin. How even those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have new life, still struggle with these internal, twisted desires that we know are wrong, that we're disgusted by, that we hate the pride, the jealousy, the envy, the lust that we long to be free of. That is the lowliness of our body. The disgusting lure that temptation has to us. That although we can look at something, we can know it's horribly offensive to God. We can still find ourselves being drawn towards it. That is the lowliness of our bodies. It's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's our self-focus, our lack of loving God and loving others. But it is also the limitations that are upon our sinful bodies. It's the limitations of a sinful body and a sin-cursed world, the, the sickness and the cavities in the root canals and the atrophy of muscles when you haven't run in a long time and whatever your sins feel like afterwards. It's the decay we go through and the disease and death. That is the lowliness of our bodies. The lowliness of our bodies is everything that would make us not want to spend eternity as we are right now, Right? I mean, of course, if we had to choose, would you rather be in God's presence as you are or not at all? Well, we would take as we are, right? But we know that that would be disappointing if forever, in eternity, we always ache, right? I mean, like, like for eternity, do I really want a mouth full of metal? Not really. Like, I mean, if, if I've got a choice. But that's nothing. That's nothing compares to, could you imagine forever being Allured by sin? Forever struggling with pride? That would be horrible. So the lowliness of our body is everything that we would not want to continue in eternity about us. We don't have to worry about that, though, because it says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. The process has already begun for those who have their hope in Christ Jesus. If you have new life in Christ Jesus, that process has already begun in you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 encourages us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if he is your one hope in life and death, if he has given you newness of life, you are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You already are experiencing that newness of life. You've got new desires. You are already becoming appropriate to heaven. Ephesians 4.24 describes how those who are in Christ have put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are already becoming what we will be. That God has started. He's given you new life. And now we're just waiting for that new life to come to fullness. As it describes here, to be brought into conformity with the body of his glory. We know that we are partially conformed to him. That we have a new nature that is in conformity with him. But we're still in whatever influence this, this flesh has upon us. But that's not the end of the story. There's lots of verses that talk about this. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He's going to have millions who are like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not something we're waiting for. Right now we're God's children. And it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We're stuck. 
We're, we're, we, we, we are God's children, but it's going to get better. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When we see him in all of his glory, we will become like him. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 talks, there's a series of who we are and what we will be. It says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, that's what we have now, but it's raised in an imperishable body, it's what we will have. It's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. He, Paul contrasts the perishable versus the imperishable. In the imperishable, there will be no aging, there will be no decay, there will be no evidence of injury. From everything that we know from Scripture, the only person who will have any evidence of injury is the scars that Christ has as a reminder for us. Paul contrasts the dishonor that we have now with the glory we will have then. Right now, there are things that are dishonorable about us. Worst of all, the shame of sin. In future, though, there will only be glory. And perhaps even, the Bible talks about enough, even maybe sharing Christ, Christ's glory. I don't even know that's something that we're going to see. He, he shines. There's a contrast between weakness and power. Right now, we are weak and we, we, we have the ability in our new natures to obey, but we are hampered as we are in this sinful flesh. But then we will have power. We will have the power that Christ intends so that we can fully obey his commands for all eternity. To, to fully be everything he desires a human to be. Right now we have a natural worldly body, but then it'll be spiritual, appropriate to God's presence, untainted by any sin. Our bodies will be transformed, conformed to Christ's own glorious body. Jesus' heavenly, incorruptible, eternal DNA will be our DNA, or at least the basis of our DNA. I don't even know what that's going to be like. I mean, well, if you could take a DNA test on Jesus, is that going to be what our DNA is like? I think, I th I think that's a neat idea. Right now, our, our, our DNA is broken. We are, we are in Adam. But then we will forever, as we are in Christ, it'll be, we'll be conformed to Christ's own glorious body. The limits and influences of Adam's sin will be forever gone. We'll be fully ready for eternity with God. There'll be no confession, no temptation, no medication, no suffering. No need to limit any desire we have. Because every desire we have would be for God's glory all the time. No need to say no to anything. Because every desire will be perfect. Just as Christ is. Knowing how different we're going to be. Knowing how glorious that will be. Shouldn't that motivate us? And we're, we're, we're going to go back to what Paul says in verse 17. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. That was what Paul did. He reached out for the finish line of being like Christ. He, he longed for the day. He tried to bring himself so that there's as little distance as possible. 
That is what we are to be doing now because we know what's going to happen. We know what we're going to be transformed into. Of course, we can't do this in our own strength. It's because we are in Christ Jesus, though. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have the ability to be striving for that God-pleasing perfection. We talked a couple weeks ago how we know that's not going to be perfectly attainable. It's why we can't wait for Christ to come back and finish that work. But are you striving? Paul wants to motivate us. And then he motivates us. First, we, we, we talked about where our citizenship is in heaven with the arrival of our Savior that we eagerly wait for, the transformation of our bodies, and now number four, with the extent of his power. We're motivated by the extent of his power. In, in, in the New American Standard, it says, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The, the ESV says, by the power that enables him. It's, it's, it's power that he is able to subject all things to himself. There is no limit to God's power to execute his plan. Christ has all the power that he needs. He has the power to align every atom in the universe and to transform every son of Adam. We read about Christ's exaltation in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. How God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, the name Lord, the name Yahweh. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When God the Father exalted his Son, Christ was given power to rule, authority to rule over all the universe. Ephesians 1, 20-22 describes that. Describes how God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the testimony that Jesus gave himself when he rose from the dead to his disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is no limit on Christ's power. And with that infinite authority, Jesus will transform your body of lowliness to his body of glory. No human can throttle Christ's power. All created order is is, is silly putty in his hands to do whatever he wants with. Whatever he can think of, whatever he can imagine. He is the indestructible, eternal, new Adam. And he's going to conform us to be like him. So because of that power that Jesus has, because we know with absolute certainty that every one of us that has been sealed with his spirit, that every one of us that the Father has elected, that that every one of us is going to be transformed into the image of his Son. We, we, we pursue that Christ-likeness now. Now, people submit to physical trainers because they desire to look a certain way. Athletes submit to coaches because they're convinced that they can make their game better. Musicians submit to teachers because they can help them play better. But no teacher, no coach, no physical trainer has the power to actually transform someone. Right? The physical trainer can't just tweak you and make you stronger. The, the, the piano teacher can't zap you and make you play better. They don't have the power. Christ has the power to make you fitting for a perfect eternal home in heaven. 
so that you are at home in a holy creation. We imitate that apostolic example now because Christ has the power to transform us because we know what we, what we will become. Really, that's what we, we learned in care groups this year in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. Do this knowing the time. That's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The day's almost there. You're almost what you're going to be for eternity. So, so embrace that now. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the lust of the flesh thereof. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, it's just sweet verses. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it's not been appeared. I read this one earlier, but listen to where this goes. It's not appeared as yet what we will be. We haven't seen Jesus yet. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And then listen to what we do with that. It's not just like, well, it's good to know. Okay, no, no, no. Verse 3 of 1 John 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if that's your hope, what do you do? You try to align for it. You try to jump the gun. You try to get out ahead of it. How can it be as pleasing to Christ as possible when he returns? How, how, how can I, with him working through me, make as little need to change as possible? I want to be a testimony to his power in this life, not just in eternity. This is why Paul talks about what he did in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. I'm going to read it once again. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he didn't say this so that we all would pat him on the back and say, well, good job, Paul. He says that so that we would imitate him. So that we would all be running until we feel like we're almost going to stumble over as we stretch out for the finish line. Day after day, hour by hour. As I said, we kind of have a section that is sandwiched by commands here. Paul built from that command to imitate first. He talked about the need to, to, to imitate. We looked at last week. Then he motivated us to imitate. But then he built upon this motive, this, these motivations, both the danger that the enemies of the cross of the Christ pr present with their, with their, with their influence, but then also this wonderful picture of the certainty of our transformation. And he builds upon it in this command to stand in Philippians 4.1. He begins with a therefore. Therefore, in light of my command to follow my example, because of the influence of the enemies of the cross of Christ, because of our heavenly citizenship, because of the certainty of Christ's return, because of the unstoppable transformation you're going to experience, and he says therefore, but before he says what the therefore is, he encourages us. He doesn't withhold his affection from them. He's, he's not some wizard behind a curtain just barking out orders. He's not a drill sergeant. Listen to this love. He piles up, uh, he piles up, he piles up, Paul piles five terms. We'll just say he piles them up. Paul piles five terms of affection here. He says, my beloved brethren whom I long to see. And I think the ESV has a little bit better. My brothers, whom I love and long for. 
long for. I yearn to be with you again. I love you. You're my brothers and sisters. I love you. I long for you. And then there's another one, my joy. It wasn't his only joy. They weren't his only joy. But they were his joy. You are a source of joy to me. And then he says, my crown. My, my, my crown. You're the evidence of my successful ministry. You're the reward of my labor. You're my gold medal. And, 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 and in 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about this being at the return of Christ. But right now, in this verse, there's no indication of that. You're, you're, you're my gold medal. You're, you're, all that I, you're, you're all that I want to win. You're my joy. You're my, you're my beloved, my loved ones. I, I long to be with you again. Now, I said there was at five. At the end of the verse, he says, my beloved again. And, and, and you can sense that there's an urgency here, but there's also affection. Right? He's not just saying, be like me, be like me. It's not angry. I don't have a very good angry voice, apparently. But This is not a solitary race for Paul. Paul does forget what he, what's behind him, but he doesn't forget who he's running with. He loves the Philippians. And he loved those in Ephesus even though he hadn't been there yet. He loved the Corinthians who caused him such heartache. We see what, what the therefore is in the middle of verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In this way stand firm in the Lord. And This is a hinge verse here, chapter 4. Verse 1, and commentaries are really split. Some, some say he's talking about the commands he's just given. Others say he's, he's talking about the commands he's going to give. I think it's really hard to be definite. I lean towards he's talking about the, the commands he just gave, especially because of the therefore there. Therefore, and, and, and he says, in this way, and I think he's looking back, in this way, stand firm. Stand firm, like soldiers in battle. Now, don't think of just kind of like a standing firm, like a guard at a monument. Now, that's not really so much a soldier in battle. It's a guard. Stand firm. Think of, think of a, stubborn, a stubborn wrestler who won't tap out. Stand firm. Like soldiers who refuse to give up that hill, though the onslaught of any enemy combatants is incessant. Stand firm. Don't give up. We stand firm in this way, by following the apostolic example, by knowing Christ, by knowing the power of his resurrection, by knowing the fellowship of his suffering, by, 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 by being rejected even as Christ was rejected, by obeying as Christ, was, as Christ obeyed, by being conformed to his death, by dying to ourselves, by taking hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us, by pressing on towards the goal the upward, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus for the prize. That's how we stand firm. It's by pressing on. He says, stand firm in the Lord. In union with him who has been exalted as Lord over all. He is the all-powerful one who gives the order to march. He is the all-powerful one who supplies the strength that you need to obey him. He's the all-powerful one who will transform you at his return. Stand firm in the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, will you stand firm in the Lord? Will you be stable until the return of Christ? Will you be safe until the return of Christ? Will you be safe from the enemies of the cross of Christ? 
The way set out for us in God's word is to follow Paul's example and the example of those who follow his pattern. It's an example of running. It is not an example of coasting. It is an example of stretching out for the prize, of taking hold of it, of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, of making the most of the righteousness that you've been given in Christ Jesus, of waiting eagerly for our Savior to transform us, of living like a citizen of heaven now. If you reject that Pauline example, you are rejecting standing firm. There are, they, I mean, he's really saying there's two ways to be a Christian here. Well, I don't, I don't know if he would exactly say that. But, because I don't think there's one way. You're either going to stand firm or you're not. You're either going to follow Paul's example or you're not. You're either going to be safe or you're not. So examine yourselves, brothers and sisters. Am I pushing forward or am I coasting? Am I pressing on that? Am, am I taking hold of that? You can't stand firm and say, but I really don't want to do what Paul does. I don't really want to pursue holiness. I just want to take it easy. You can't stand firm. You won't be safe from the enemies of the cross of Christ. Remember, the enemies of the cross of Christ... And this is why Paul said it with weeping, is they were dangerous. Whose end is, is, whose end is destruction. Whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things. You won't stand firm if your mind is on earthly things. Right? We are not citizens here. And his running, Paul didn't want to leave behind his beloved and longed for brothers and sisters. He didn't want to leave behind his joy and his crown. So he exerted himself so that they would be stable and that they'd be safe. He led the way for them with his example. Will you do the same for your beloved brothers and sisters? For your joy and crown? Will, will, will you be all in after that kind of pursuit of holiness for the sake of those around you? Because they are your joy because they are your crown, because you want to present them to Christ as, and, and, and as someone who participate in their sanctification by being an example for them, by cheering them on, by encouraging them to stand firm? Or are you going to set an example for them that's dangerous? Are you setting an example for them and, and even for the children of this church and, 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 and for a watching world or maybe for those who are considering becoming a follower of Christ? Are you setting them an example? dangerous example that will be impossible for them to stand firm what kind of example are you setting for them like this is why i take back he's not talking about two ways of being christian there's there's one way here there's the standing firm way there's the pauline example way there's the way of imitating there's the way of eagerly waiting for our savior is going to transform us there's not a coasting way really if you were to find that here you find it in verses 18 and 19, not in 17 or 20 or 21 or verse 4-1. The coasting way is the enemy of the cross of Christ way. The cross of Christ is sufficient to save us, and it is efficient to change us. Jesus Christ is all that we need for justification. He's all that we need for sanctification. But if we're going to be justified, we will also be sanctified. So are you willing to set the pace 
for those who are running alongside you? Are you willing to be the example for those in your home, for those who are in your care group? Can you show others by God's grace as you stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is how you stand firm. Let's pray. Father, your word is always weighty. And I think sometimes we, we find that weight in such surprising places. Um, and really, I see just this weightiness here as, as, as really Jesus called people to be his disciples. And Paul here is calling people to be his disciples. And 1 Corinthians talks about how he follows Christ. Lord, we know that we need to be disciples, and we confess, Father, how quickly we can lose the plot, how quickly we can coast, how quickly we can be concerned more about rules about what we do and don't do, or about pleasing our appetites, how quickly our minds become set on earthly things. Father, I don't know anyone's heart here well enough to know if they are an enemy of the cross of cross of Christ. We pray that you would save them if they are, but we see the danger here, the danger of that influence, and we see the call that you've given for us to, to stand firm, to, to, to endure, to stay engaged, to run that race, to, 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 to stretch our arms out, to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. We see the good news that Christ has unlimited power, that he has power to fix all creation, and what seems even more amazing Fix us, Lord, so that there's, there's, there's no remnant of jealousy or pride, no, no, no distrust of you and no unthankfulness left, no, no grumbling or disunity. Lord, we long for that day when Christ returns. And we thank you, Father, and pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to, to embrace what we are going to be, Lord. Help us to love the whole miracle of the gospel, not just the miracle of sins forgiven, but, but the miracle of transformation. Help us to love Christ's glory in the whole story, Lord. Not just in the cross and not just in eternity, but right now in this day. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to, to be mindful that we are running a race alongside others. Lord, and, 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 and that they are our brothers and sisters, that they are our beloved, our joy, and our crown. I pray, Father, that, that, that those kinds of relationships would, would, would just flourish in this church Lord, and, and that we would be so concerned about setting an example so that each other stands firm. And that, that's really what care groups would, would, would be about. And that's what coming on Sunday morning would be about. And coming to worship practice, Lord, that, that we would all together, whatever, whenever we see each other, Lord, the coffees during the week, that together we would be, be standing firm because of this love that we have for one another. And we love one another because we are all so eager for our home, Lord. We thank you that Christ is coming back. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the job that you've given us here, Lord, to, 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 to show the worth of Christ as we are transformed again and again, as we proclaim uh, his mercy as the source of our redemption. Uh, please, Father, be, 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 be transforming us into the image of your Son in this life, and we trust that you will finish it when Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen.